Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A jewel in the desert. A round city full of merchants, rulers, and scholars. The great minds of the Abbasid Empire. This is Figures of Baghdad. Hello fellow travellers, I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. Ali, I'm hearing something in the distance. Can you hear it too? I do. I hear drums. The drums of rebellion. Away from Baghdad and Samara and the politics of the court and military, something new was stirring. Tell us what we'd see, Ali. If we travel just a little south, we would see large marshlands with people working it. These were mostly enslaved people and the heart of the agricultural world of Baghdad. We've touched on slavery here and there. Some of the queens we discussed were enslaved and even some of the historical figures either owned slaves or were one themselves. That's right. The Abbasids, like most societies of this time period, were a slave society. But historians debate the terminology a bit. In school, we talked about different types of slavery throughout history. When we think of slaves today, we generally think of the slave trade that kidnapped Africans to the Americas. Right. We think of the transatlantic slave trade, which was especially brutal. Slavery in the Abbasid world was complicated. The enslaved were part of the society and had certain rights. They were even paid. We saw how some of them could become kingmakers, viziers, own land, and some even own slaves themselves. But that doesn't make this system better or more humane. It's still slavery. These individuals were not free. They were exploited and abused. They couldn't suddenly decide to stop being a slave. Any system that owns another is going to be brutal. True, and the nuances and differences don't make it better, but it's important to note because they matter in the context of this period. Exactly. When we arrive in the marshes beyond Baghdad, we would see enslaved people working the land, many of whom were Zanj, a region in southeast Africa, but also people of other backgrounds. And as you said, the marshes are a place of agriculture. I would imagine with the connection to the Tigris and the Euphrates, it was prime real estate for farming. I know that's how Egypt used the rich soil around the Nile. Exactly. But here there would be farming, building various platforms, draining the marsh and other activities. That's because the Tigris and the Euphrates were far more volatile than the Nile. And anyone who's done farm work can tell you it's hard work. Add to that that this is forced labour by people who are not free, and these are not ideal conditions. They are extremely hard conditions, Dina, and it would be those exact conditions that plant the seeds of rebellion. For you see, if you look closely among the marshlands, you will see a man preaching to the Zanj. When you say preaching, do you mean like religiously? Yeah, like a messiah. This is Ali ibn Muhammad, a man of mysterious background who had been rabble-rousing against the Abbasids around their empire for a while. Now here in the marshes, he's found his audience. 
And the conditions would be just right for this. The anarchy in Samara and the civil war would have weakened the Abbasids. We already discussed how a lot of outlying territories in the empire became increasingly autonomous and basically difficult to manage. It was the perfect conditions, Dina. Ali ibn Muhammad would also invoke religion to support his cause. He reminded the Zaj that by religious law, they had the right to good nutrition and safety in their bodies. Abusing the body of a person was forbidden by law, but the Zaj, they had faced abuse. And as we've mentioned before, culturally, things like slapping someone's face is considered an extreme taboo. Right, and the conditions of the Zanj were even more deplorable. Not only were they an enslaved people, but they didn't even have the same rights that other enslaved people did, like, say, in the capital. While others, like the Mamluk soldiers, which we've discussed, could get wealthy or powerful, the Zanj dealt with backbreaking work, poor working conditions, and poor food. So Ali ibn Muhammad's message was perfect for the conditions. The Abbasids had mistreated the Zanj even by their own rules. And he was a charismatic figure, a firebrand who really tapped into these powerful themes. And like all good messianic figures, he had a very clear message. I mean, given the chaos of this time period, even I'd buy into that message after a war between two brothers, the anarchy in Samara and the civil war. He got the timing right for sure, Dina. His message was also effective, though. God is great. God is great. There is no God but God. There is no judgment except by God. God is Great is a famous Muslim call and prayer. It's said on so many different occasions from moments of joy to fear and even righteousness. And in this particular formation, it actually goes back to the Kharijites, a deeply controversial movement that sparks a lot of anxiety for Muslims. They were a puritanical group that led to the first civil wars in Muslim history. But they were eventually defeated. I remember that they caused a lot of chaos among the first caliphs. Good memory, Dina. Their civil wars led to the death of two different caliphs at least, but their message was extremely attractive. They were radically egalitarian. They rejected the idea of dynasties completely. They believed that anyone, so long as they are righteous, they could be caliph. And of course, all were equal before God, and God was judge. That is a powerful message and the Kharijites are willing to fight for it. They spread a lot of chaos and dissension and violence with those early civil wars. Their message might have been attractive, but their methods were pretty extreme. They were an openly violent movement. So Ali ibn Muhammad is making it very clear what his intentions are. He is demanding freedom for the Zanj and he's willing to go to war for it. With his slogan, he's connecting himself to the Kharijites of old, right? True, by invoking the Kharijites, he's declaring war. He wants a brand new caliphate open to all, but at least, or perhaps at least, presumably for him, because he sees himself as a messianic figure. And if there was discontent with the Abbasids from all the chaos and infighting, then other rivals would see this as an opportunity too. That's exactly what happened. In 869, Ali ibn Muhammad led the Zanj on the first outright revolution against the Abbasids, and he was quickly joined by various Arab and Bedouin tribes, all demanding to be free from the Abbasids. 
all the groups who felt disenfranchised or exhausted from the high cost of the political turmoil quickly joined with the Zanj. Oh gosh, this was a full-fledged revolution then. Unlike the past conflicts between political factions, these are the people themselves who are rising up. It's a coalition of people, Dina, a social revolution of sorts. It included the enslaved Zanj, laborers, tribes of people, and everyone else who wanted to see a different government than the Abbasids. While the Zanj initially referred to a place in Africa, in this moment, in this time, it likely refers to the coalition of rebels from a variety of backgrounds. They may not have all had the same goals, but... But they share one thing. They want the Abbasids gone. And that was a powerful incentive to band together. The Zand Rebellion would last for 15 years and be one of the most ferocious wars the Abbasids fought. His initial attacks gained him a lot of support. He would target slave caravans and slave owners, capturing them and then rebuking them publicly in front of the enslaved. According to the historian Al-Tabari and related in an article by El-Naim, he says to them, I want to kill you all for the way you have treated these slaves in a way that Allah has forbidden. Forbidden. Wow, that must have been such a sight. Exactly. I mean, he got the right message, and it's really the right time for this movement. After the years of political infighting and all the conflicts and civil wars, the Abbasids would have been militarily vulnerable. And economically stretched thin, in addition to being militarily exhausted. So I'm guessing the rebels were initially successful, and because they came from outside the capital, the military factions with Samara and Baghdad would not have been able to put it down easily. Right, their tactics would also help here. They fought a guerrilla war that the Bedouin in particular were masters at. They'd raid villages and gather weapons from the garrisons they attacked, adding tribal allies. And so with each attack, they grew. Ah, and I remember how important momentum was when we talked about the War of the Two Brothers. If it's on your side, you can press your advantage and increase your military victory significantly. Add to it that Ali ibn Muhammad effectively brought together all the social classes yearning for something different. There was a great apocalyptic fervor brewing. Yeah, I can see that. If you've had a powerful empire that has lasted hundreds of years and then it's rocked by war after war, civil strife and your great capitals are laid under siege, you'd probably feel like the world was coming to an end. Too right. Ali ibn Muhammad really taps into that. In 871, he proclaimed that he would take the city of Basra under a lunar eclipse, tying the celestial symbolism to his movement. And we've already seen how important that type of symbolism was in the founding of Baghdad. And Basra was an important city. One of the major gates of Baghdad was named after it. Now, does that mean they came close to taking Baghdad too, Ali? Very close, Adina. Basra was a big coup for them. After laying siege to the city for a year, Ali ibn Muhammad claimed that he had a vision that he would take this city under the eclipse I mentioned. He divided his troops into two, coming at the city in a pincer move. The weakened city put up a valiant defense, protecting the mosque and even pushing back the rebels to the cemetery. But by attacking on multiple fronts after a long siege, the city could not hold out. The rebels swept through the city, looting it victoriously. 
The loss of Basra would have been huge. A major Abbasid city under the control of rebels, large parts of the marshland now part of the rebellion, and a coalition of people all rising up against the Abbasids. That's a lot to handle. It was. The Abbasids really struggled to respond effectively. The fact that it lasted 15 years is major too. That's almost as long as the War of the Two Brothers. The Abbasids were fighting multiple conflicts. After all, they were trying to stabilize their empire after the civil war between the Khalifs. They also had to contend with different internal factions, powerful military groups and powerful families. But they did finally manage to cobble together a defense. In 879, they met Ali ibn Muhammad's coalition in open combat and were able to turn the tide in their favor. Of course they did. That seems to always be the solution. <laughs> it is. Pay them off. They offered really good terms to anyone who would lay down their arms. Over two years, Muwafiq cleverly broke away and chipped away at the coalition of Ali ibn Muhammad. Because they were such a diverse group with different aims, he was able to play into that until only a small core group was left. And then he was able to take their base and end Ali ibn Muhammad for good. And so ends the Zanj Rebellion, one of the most interesting social revolutions in Abbasid history. Ali, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. There is so much more to this history. That's so true, Dina. We could never hope to cover all of Abbasid history in a couple of seasons. But we hope that we've whet your appetite, that we've sparked your curiosity, and maybe you'll dive into the history even more and hopefully have a bit more context behind the game, Assassin's Creed Mirage. Honestly, I wish we could keep going forever, but Ali, I've loved our short trip into medieval Baghdad and its amazing history and people. It's been a blast hanging out with you, Dina, my travel companion, as we've wandered through the great city of Baghdad. We visited this city's historical figures, Scholars and scientists. Queens and viziers. Soldiers and rebels. And if you want to stay in touch with us, your guides, you can find me on my socials at Dina Hassanin. And you can catch me everywhere at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. Thank you for exploring with us. I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. This is a Ubisoft podcast produced by Paradiso Media. Be sure to subscribe to Echoes of History wherever you get your podcasts so you can hear the full two seasons of our journey through medieval Baghdad. Until our paths cross again, fellow travelers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.